to turn your Bibles with scripture reading this morning to 1 Kings in chapter 16, toward the end of the passage, and then also all of 1 Kings chapter 17. Let's stand together. Follow a little bit of a different way of reading the scriptures narrated for a longer passage, an older Reformed tradition. So I'll compress and have a few comments instead of reading every single verse and every word. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel and reigned in Samaria over Israel. Come to a place in the history of Israel that gone through King Saul, King David, King Solomon. Kingdom has divided in heresy, northern and southern kingdom. Asa is in control of the southern kingdom. And then Ahab, a famous or infamous king. Here's what the word says about Ahab about 80 years after Solomon. Ahab, verse 30, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And just in case we were to miss that point, look down at verse 33. And he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Dozens of kings of different types before him, we all up together would say here that Ahab was absolutely the worst of them all. And it tells us why he was the worst of us all in the middle of them all in the middle of that paragraph. It says that he married Jezebel, princess of a Baal worshiping Phoenician king. Not only did he marry her, it says he adopted her god, Baal, set up an altar to God, excuse me, to Baal, and worshiped him rather than the God of Israel. Chapter 17. And to that circumstance with the worst of the worst ruling. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except by my word. They worshipped Baal. Baal was known in that pantheon as the God of storms and rain. And therefore the God of fruitful crops, and also flourishing herds of livestock. Without the rain, you don't have those things in an agricultural society. And here comes the man of God and says, Baal does that. Let's see what God says, the true and the living God. Here's what he says. You do not obey my covenant that I made with you from back in Deuteronomy and the law. Then your fruitful land will go away because I will withhold the blessings. I'll withhold the rain. Baal, you worship him, you worship the world. You think they bring prosperity. God says no rain. And not only no rain, it says again in verse one, neither dew nor rain. Some places in arid areas, desert type areas, like in the Middle East, even if it doesn't rain, there'll be condensation in the morning and the insects and some of the lizards and reptiles, what have you, can get enough water to survive on. But here, God says, Baal, you like that guy over there? You think he brings rain? Listen to my word. No rain, not even dew in the morning. Verse 2, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward and hide in Cherith Ravine, east of Jordan. There you'll drink from the brook. Now I've ordered the ravens to feed you. And then in this longer passage, there's a change in the scene and the narrative. Goes from Elijah confronting Ahab, and then he's later on back in civilization, you might say, in verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath of Zidon and stay there. I've commanded, or we might say an ordained 
predestined a widow in that place to supply you with food. He had been out in the wilderness on the east side of Jordan. Now he goes back to Zarephath, which was known as the headquarters of Baal worship in all of that territory. So he's going back to the home field, you might say, of the pagan god and the pagan king. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And as he was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of water, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat and die. And then Elijah's word to the widow in the hometown of Baal, we might say. And Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me and from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day of the Lord when he gives rain on the land. Skip down just a little bit further, verse 17. Been provided for water, food for the widow and Elijah for some time, but there came a crisis moment. Verse 17. Then sometimes later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What? you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? And you remember we began with Baal, the Phoenician god of life, we might say, or fertility, rain, storms. The foil in that pantheon of Baal was Mot, the god of death. So in the beginning of this passage, God, the man of God, defeats Baal. And now, at the end, he confronts Mot, their god of death. Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord God, let this boy's life return to it. The Lord God, verse 22, heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into his house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know. We would say, now I know for certain, for sure, that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Let's bow together for just a moment. Father, we pray that you bless your word, bring fruit from it today. You correct the things that we think of incorrectly and wrong and correct our sin send us direct us through the word of life your printed word to direct us to your glory we ask it in jesus name we'll sing the glory of patre
be seated, please. You might have noticed in your bulletin today, title of the sermon, that God gives life in a cursed land. Made a little list of a few things today that I'm reminded of about a cursed land. How about a land where rather than God being explicitly, exclusively ruler, and the country says, well, we believe that from official position for our country, all deities are equal, all religions are equal. There's no exclusive truth in Orthodox Christianity. And we'll go to the point of saying that in our institutions, and even in the military, we can have chaplains of all kinds of false, heretical gods, even to the point of having satanic chaplains. What do we say about a country? What about a country that says, we control life? We say when life can begin and when it can end. And we abort hundreds of thousands of children in the womb. We say when life can begin. We also say when life can end. And we support and we work towards a society with a culture of death. Not only abortion, but on the other end of the spectrum, we support euthanasia. That you can take your life at any moment and you can help other people no matter hardly their state of mind or condition, and you can help others take their own life. What about a country that says, I decide whether I'm a woman or a man. I decide that. And Christian ideas of marriage and family are too old. They're too, they're not nuanced enough for our particular age we live in today. What about redefining even marriage itself? Not just defining who men and women are, but redefining what a marriage is. Who can marry? And then, if you don't go our way, if you don't uh, go along with support our fantasies and our speculations, then you are the one that's out of step. That sounds like a grave situation. Some of the circumstances we live under today, we might look back across the administrations of the United States and the governments that we've had in the past, and we might say the people that look at marriage that way and look at God himself that way and look at life that way or life in general, the purpose, the principles of life, take life when you want to, leave life behind when you feel like it's convenient, would we say that perhaps the government we live under today might be the most wicked we've ever had in our country? Might we be under God's wrath and curse in some way? What if we lived in a country where the greatest military, best equipped military in the world is defeated by a few hundred, few thousand ragtag Bedouins, poorly equipped in the desert. Well, if we looked and saw that we have the lowest birth rate in the United States, that we cannot even sustain our population, the birth rate is so low. Well, we say we decide who lives and who dies. Well, if we looked at our country and noticed that the age, the average age or mortality rate, that right now the average death age lifespan is, has decreased the last two years in a row. What if we saw a whole summer, whole season of political, real anarchy and riots in our major cities? What if our administration or our government said to us that we want to recognize not 
Christian marriage and sexuality, the way the Bible says, we want to recognize and lift to the highest degree and praise deviant things that we would have called depraved just only a few years ago and raise that to a point of celebrating in our country. And we saw a country where recently it was polled that in some of our major cities as many as as much as 20 percent of the teenage girls don't know whether they're girls or boys. And we allow men and ladies sports to compete on teams and to overwhelm and physically abuse women on the other side, on the other team. What if you watched the Science Channel all across the United States just this past week, the Discovery Channel? Well, they're giving some facts about nature and what have you, and stick it to your face that the Discovery Channel science is celebrating and recognizing Gay Pride Month to your children and your grandchildren in their face when you thought you were going to see something about science, real facts. That would cause me to wonder, has God's curse fallen on the United States to some degree? Is it because of the things we allow in our national government? What else would we expect from God? But what about God's people? You know, I said, God gives life in a cursed land. What about God's people living in this cursed society? God gives us some promises in chapter 17. Some ways, you might say, how do we cope? How do we function as a Christian people in a society under God's curse? First of all, look in chapter 17 again. The first principle would be this, that God gives life. He gives, he supports men in charge of his church. He gives grace. He sustains the men in charge of their families. Look at verse 17 again, excuse me, 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said, to Ahab. Notice the first thing that godly men, leaders among God's people, God's prophet here in the Old Testament, what's the first thing that he does in this godless society? He confronts the leaders of the godless society, in particular the king that's apostatized and gone after Baal. And what does he confront him with? He confronts him with God's word. Earlier in the Bible, Deuteronomy and Leviticus and the books of the law, God made the covenant with Israel. And he said to them, if you do these things, you abide under my rules, you do what I say, worship me exclusively, here's what happens. You will live in a land filled with milk and honey. The latter rains and the early rains will come. And you'll have blessed lands. You'll have blessed families. You'll have prosperity. What did Baal say? Baal said, I'm in charge of the rain. And what had happened here, they'd been cursed. God was cutting off the rain to the point that not only it wasn't going to rain, there wasn't going to be any dew involved anywhere. And he says, the man of God says to the king, The Lord God of Israel that lives, not a dead Baal, not a dead false God, and any God before or after any God beside God is a false God. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. That means anywhere in my sight. As the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain, in the next years, except by my word. What's the man of God to do? He proclaims God's truth according to what the word of God says in its context. What does that mean for us today? 
That means men that stand in the pulpit to preach. The minister, the pastor, the elders in general. What do they have to do? In the face of a wicked society and under pressure to conform to the norms of a present society, the men of God still have to stand their ground, stand firm in the Word of God and call evil, evil. And anytime the morality of a community, of a nation, anytime the king, the leaders vary from biblical morality and principles, it is time for God's men, the pastors, the elders in the church to stand and say, that is wrong. By the word of God, by the word of the Lord, by the law of God, this is evil. That's our job. That's our responsibility. You need to be thankful that you attend a church where the men of God believe in the inerrancy as we spoke about in the, earlier in the service, the inerrancy and sufficiency of the scriptures. And they preach it to you. You need to understand or be glad that you have a biblical ecclesiology where you have more than one elder to hold themselves accountable one to another to make sure they stand against the society and preach the truth to you. You'd be happy about that. You'd be glad you have deacons to support them. But we need to go just a little bit further beyond that. Not only do you have elders in places of offices in the church, but men, every one of us, that's a husband or father. God has placed us in a position to rule in our homes. And that's not by badgering or by force, it's by leadership and compassion but firmness standing on the principles of God's Word. Older Reformed churches put it this way at times. Some of the writers would say this, every husband, every father, you're to have a little church in your own house. Even when we're not elders or preachers, even when we try to stand for God as husband or father in our home, we're also presented with the outside forces that come against us. What would lead us to need to be strengthened in these areas, men? The problem comes when we are going against the popular thought, the popular trends in society as far as morality and ethics are concerned. And we know that if we take these stands against these things that I've already mentioned, that go against biblical morality and ethics, we know that we are against, we are reprimanding, we're calling the world depraved. We're calling the world wrong. We're calling the world the enemy of God. What happens when you do that in public? You put yourself in a position of liability where the public will attack you. You have a job and you stand too much, the world thinks, firmly in place for God's principles. What can they do to you? They can deny you business. Your clients can go away. They can deny you a promotion where you work. They can interfere with your benefits, you might say, your retirement even. What about the elders in the church? When they stand against things, against the world that preaches all these things I just talked about. What happens to them? Well, they say, well, church, remember your pastor's too strident. Your pastor's too old-fashioned. You and your pastor need to be, elders need to be more nuanced. You need to be adapting to the spirit of the age. And if you don't, you won't be the most popular church among the yuppie crowd in Smith County. They'll go someplace else where they have more upbeat music. They'll go someplace where somebody will tickle their ears, will support them, in their deviant behavior and lifestyle, and they'll go there. Our job in our churches as men, elders, as fathers and husbands in the home, is not to adapt or adopt to or change according to the spirit of the age, the spirit of the world. Our job, our duty, is to stand against and correct the spirit of the age. That's our duty. It's a hard thing to do at times. 
When all those pressures come from society and from economics and business and all those other areas, we worry about promotion, worry about the ability to take care of our families. What does God say to us? When we take those unpopular positions, God's Word says, Jesus Himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Two ideas, two concepts, they sound the same, somewhat similar in English, but they're different. I will not forsake you. The idea is that I have ultimate authority and power, eternal power, and I have all resources belong to me, and I will not forsake you in your physical needs here on this earth. I will not abandon you. I won't run out of resources to care for your families. We may not have everything we think we want, but we will have what our family needs. Then he said, not only will I not run out of these resources you need, I will not forsake you, just go off and leave you and turn my back on you for some new philosophy, some new religion I'll start someplace. When God's men, his elders and his deacons, the head of households, stand for godly principles, he will not leave you nor forsake you. That's the promise of God. And the writer's response to that in the book of Hebrews was, therefore, because he will not leave me nor forsake me, I can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? That's the stand of godly men today. Confronting the world biblically, leading our churches biblically, leading our families without fear of what man can do to us. God's Word says, don't worry about those that can destroy the flesh. You need to fear the one that can destroy the flesh and cast your soul into hell. That's who we fear, the true and the living God. We serve Him. But I know from life experience, management experience, you might say, in some degree, families know this, fathers know this, business owners, professional people know this. When you have people under you depending on you, you know that the things you say and the things you do and the positions you take don't affect you alone. They affect everybody that works for you or under you, that depends on you. It affects your wife and your children and grandchildren. It affects your friends, brothers and sisters around you. And that is a strain and a source of pressure on them. So for a moment we shift our focus from those that are in the position of elder or head of household. What about those that support in those areas? We shift the scene to verse 7. God not only gives life to his spokesman, supports him, God also gives life to those that support those in leadership. Sometime later, verse 7, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, that being Elijah, go at once to Zarephath. All right, you've been out here in the desert. I've been providing for you. Now we're in this contest or this display of power against Baal. Now you go back to headquarters. You go back to the home field, you might say, of Baal, which was Zarephath. Stay there. I've commanded a widow. I've ordained a widow in that place, predestined a widow in that place to supply you with food. Has God, by his providence and direction in your life, by his decree, eternal decree, has he called you into his kingdom? Has he, by his providence, control of circumstances all around you of life, has he led you to this church? By God's providence... By his direction, has he given you, ladies, he given you a husband, children, has he given you a father? It's all by God's will and by God's doing. 
foreordained by God to be in the position we are in today. He commanded that widow. He commands us. What did he command the widow to do through Elijah? Verse 10. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called to her again, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. And surely, as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and for my son that we may eat it and die. Ladies, can you imagine that the only thing you have, you don't have any bread, you don't have any rolls, you don't have any canned goods, anything in the freezer, and all you have is just in the palm of your hand a pile, little pile of meal, a little pile of flour. Maybe, how much do you think you can hold in your hand, ladies? Maybe a quarter, a third of a cup, hold it there. And then, all you've got to go with it to prepare it with, maybe a tablespoon of oil, cooking oil. And you say to the man of God, stand on the principles that you're talking about. Confront wicked leaders, confront a wicked king that's worshiping Baal and telling us to worship Baal. Putting up idols to Baal in our community. And I know if I rebel against that king, I know what's going to happen to me. And I know what his wife Jezebel is capable of. Why in the world would I do what you say? But what was Elijah's reply? What are his instructions to her? See, even though that's all you have, first, stop, first, you prepare something for me. And then you go and prepare something for yourself. You see what Elijah had done, what God had done? Put her, the person that would be supporting the man of God. He put her in a position of faith, just like he had Elijah in a position of faith, standing up to a wicked, wicked king. Now, this person supporting Elijah is put in the same position. Will you obey and worship God, or will you serve Baal? Take a stand. First, you give to me. First, you support the mission of God. How does that apply to us today? You're not an elder in the church, but your family comes to church here. How would it apply to us? What's God's promise? God's promise is this. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness and all these other things will take care of themselves. All these things will be added to you, the secular side, supply side of life. How does that apply to us? The widow was told, first, support the kingdom of God, the man of God. We need to declare to ourselves, decide for ourselves, church member, church families, head of households, that we're going to put God first. Practical, most practical way of doing that and witnessing and leading our families is saying that first, on the first day of the week, God's day, that He has set aside for His worship, turn away from secular activities, turn away from commercial activities. Men, you lead your family to the house of God on the first day of the week to worship the true and the living God. First. Families first, with the first fruits of all of our offering, all of our income, our tithes, we give to God first. Why do we do that? Giving to God first of our first fruits of our income, that puts us in a place of being, having to trust God with all the rest of it. We put God's day, the first day of the week, the Lord's day first in our lives. 
when we look forward to that as a time to go, Bible, it's not the Bible, all the Reformed writers will say, we need to look at this day that we're gathered here, rather than the market day where we go shopping and do all of our business, and do just whatever pleases us, we come and look forward to the Lord's day and the Lord's house as the marketplace for our souls. And that's what we look forward to all week long, being able to serve God first and serve our families in the house of God. We have to work. We have to. God has blessed. There is a doctrine where we understand the goodness of work and honest labor and honest business, and we take care of that. But we do not, God's people do not put that ahead of the Lord's day. And when we do that, we have to ask ourselves, God, can I really stand behind this church? Can I really stand behind these men that teach and preach at our church, that stand against these things that are wicked and evil in our society and keep us guided on the right path? Can I really do that? Can I stand up behind that? Can I withstand the social pressure and the pressure from my family and neighbors not to conform to the ways of the world? You're in a support position. Can you do it? Will you do it? Will you put the Lord first in your life? That's what Elijah told that woman to do. And what was the promise to her? Again, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek ye first to give what I've told you to do with me. And then your flour and your oil won't run out. We may never have everything we think that we want or desire. But if we follow God's way, submitted to God, He will provide for our needs and our necessities. Ladies, children, seek ye first the kingdom of God. God's ordained place in the home of the husband is to lead and protect That's what the father of the husband does. Ladies, your job is to support them and follow them as far as they follow Christ. Back them up, encourage them to put the Lord's people, the Lord's work first in their lives and stand for God and God will provide for your church he will provide for your family. Then again, the scene changes in chapter 17. We'll notice down verse 12, 17. Sometime later, that's the change in the scenery. Like in a play or a television show or a movie, the scenes change. This is another scene in the same program. Something changed. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the Lord's house became ill. The woman's child, the widow's child, in this household, God had been providing for in a time of famine and drought. Suddenly, things get bad. He became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. What happens oftentimes in our lives, and I see it, and you've seen it if you live long enough, that people... There'll be hangers-on. They may even seem to be as if they are participating and part of the family of God. But when things get difficult, things become hard, what do they do? They fade away. What caused them to fade away? You know, when things are going well, it's easy to serve God. Generally speaking, Christian people live in a condition of more prosperity than in the world around them, generally. Anytime a man that's married, a father, he said, I'm going to do away, I'm going to go away from drunkenness and selfishness and being a prolificate and all those kind of things, and I'm going to work hard, and I'm going to provide for my family, be faithful to my wife and protect my family and children. What usually happens in a man that has a disciplined life in general, an ethical 
in general, there's calm and peace in the life, and generally it's on an upward slant. But sometimes along in our lives, there comes tragic circumstances where God requires us or challenges us to believe Him and serve Him despite what we see on the surface. When our circumstances become more than what we think we can stand up to. And I can't think of a more tragic, a more difficult circumstance to come across than for your only, for a widow woman to have her only son pass away, her only support in the life to come. She'd gone to the point, she'd been obedient to a point, she had submitted, she'd looked past her own inclinations or her own ideas about survival, own instincts. He looked, she looked beyond her own instincts about providing for her child, food, and those kind of things. But now, it's on a whole new level. The boy has died. You ever been to a point like that? Been serving God for a while, living in somewhat a regulated, well-ordered family, things relatively prosperous, peaceful at home. But then there is a death in the immediate family, a tragic death perhaps. Maybe a failing business. Maybe a business you work for fails. Without any regard for what your input had been. Maybe the person in charge of where you work or your supervisor was a wicked person that led everything to go wrong. And it upset all of your life, all your daily needs and care and peace in your home. A calamity of some sort, even a weather strategy. Hurricanes, tornadoes turned your life upside down, whatever it might be. Can you hang in there when things happen like that? Have you? What did that widow do? She said, she brought up to the man of God, said, have you come here to call my sins up before God? Remind God and kill my son. What did Elijah do? Verse 20. Says he cried out to the Lord. Oh Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord. Oh Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. We know, if you studied long, you've been in church long enough, you know that all the Old Testament, all these books of the Old Testament, there are types and shadows that are pointing us to Christ and his eternal kingdom. Elijah the prophets, God took care of them. Men of God, serving in Christ's church, God takes care of us. People supporting roles, people supporting godly husbands and fathers. God will take care of you. He won't leave you nor forsake you. You put him first. All these things will come about eventually for you. But then the tragedy comes. How does this point to Christ? Even in our day and time to now, one of the things that repulses us, reviles us the most, it's having to deal with a dead animal. And particularly superstitious people, particularly human beings, to be around, have to deal with the death of a friend or a neighbor, even a family member. We are repelled naturally by death. But think about Elijah, the prophet of God. One of the few things that can make him unclean separated from God, unable to serve, unable to worship God, was being around any dead animal, particularly dead human beings. Did he run away? What did he do? He actually came and kind of took the boy from her arms. That is a picture. Christ taking our defilement, taking our dead nature of sin unto himself. Listen to this verse. Listen to the pronouns. 
of what Christ was willing to do for us. He himself, an emphasis, repetition of the pronouns, he himself bore our sin in his own body. He himself, his own body. Your filth and corruption, your depraved, terrible, blackened soul, dead in trespasses and sins. Christ himself bore our sins on the cross. Why did he do that? What did he accomplish? He took our sins. And the one that gave life to that boy, raised that boy, raises our own soul in our lives. He gives us his righteousness, his holiness. Again, he bore in his, himself and his own body our sins, that we might die to sin and live under righteousness or live for God. What does that tell us? You look down, the lady trusted. Elijah preached. The boy came to life. Verse 24. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know. Now I know. I'm convinced. I know for certain that the word of the Lord that comes from your mouth is the truth. It's the word of God. You really do speak for God. Now I know, now I'm convinced, I've had a personal experience. I know that what the man of God says is the truth. When God says, I demand exclusive worship of me through Christ by faith. I demand participation in the family of God and putting all of that first. I know what you're saying, Elijah. I know God is true. Because now I see the resurrection of life. How do you know that the truth of God, the promises to God's church, the promises to the leaders in the church, that he will not leave us nor forsake us? How do you know supporting people, supporting family of the men and the leaders? How do you know that if you put God's first, that all the other things are going to work out for you? How do you know? You know it when Christ takes your awful, filthy sins upon himself, and he, by a miracle of grace, implants in you by conversion, by the new birth. He plants in you, in your heart, and in your mind. Now, you know that what's in me is something I did not create. My natural inclination is toward sin, toward conformity unto the world, and bending to the world. And now all of a sudden I see that as sin. Where I saw it as something desirable before. And now all of a sudden I feel guilty about my sin. I feel the need for forgiveness in my life. And now all of a sudden the things of God are starting to become clear. Now all of a sudden I perceive the sacrifice of Christ. Putting his righteousness on me. Dying in my place on the cross. And now I can see it. Because it's new, it's real, there's something different in me. He has created new life in me, just as he created new life in that dead boy. Now he comes to his elect and he creates new life in us. And when you had new life implanted in you by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the word and being called forth also by the ordinances of the church, the means of grace, when those things happen and you have a conversion experience with God, you know, like the widow would know, that I know what he's saying is true. You can know like the man that's trying to serve God, you can know that God will provide. God is truly on the throne and all these other things are just vanities, emptiness, false gods, false truth. Do you know? Can you say like the widow can say, now I know. Now even maybe at this very moment, this very hour, Christ is renewing, bringing a new birth to your heart and you feel the need to repent and turn to God. 
Maybe feel now the joy to some degree, the release of sin, knowing that Christ has forgiven you, died in your place, and started to give you a new heart, and your mind and your heart is starting to change. You feel a new life. Now I know all those other promises are absolutely God can sustain his people in a cursed land when they know that Christ is real in their life. They know they can trust all of his promises. Let's bow together for just a moment. Father, we bless your name. That when we were dead in trespasses and sins, by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching, ministry of the Word, you give your people new life. We thank you for that new life, the rescue from this world. We thank you for godly people and leadership in our churches. We thank you for godly churches. We thank you for godly Men leading their families, standing against the world and trusting in God in a cursed land. Father, I pray for the elders, deacons, office bearers in this church. That you would indeed give them biblical fidelity and courage to stand against this present age families of this church to support these men and for those men that lead their families Father give them grace to understand you'll never leave them or forsake them that you'll provide for them in every way but primarily and most of all we're most thankful you provide spiritual blessings for us you give us justification from sin before God you adopt us into the family of God and you will keep us there for all of eternity by your power Father there be some that have been tempted away been compromised by the worldly positions you give them more grace today Draw them to yourself in a place of repentance. Give them courage. Or for one or more that might be here today and you've just begun the work of rebirth and conversion in their lives, pray that you give them courage to embrace that, courage to persevere by your power. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.